Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Richard Tufton to consider the reality of scaling up land regeneration through making shifts within the supply chain of meat. We've frequently heard about the role of ruminant animals in the healing of land and sequestering of carbon. I'll leave links at the top of the description to previous episodes that go into that in more detail. But with such huge numbers of livestock being raised in more industrialised feedlot systems, the narrative gets very muddied, with cattle frequently branded as the climate enemy. Richard shares that in the US alone, 120,000 head of cattle are slaughtered every day for meat production. That sounds horrifying, but it's a reality, it's where we're at right now, and it's a huge contribution to our food system. So this is a complex conversation that could take many directions. But our biggest focus in this discussion is that only a tiny, tiny percentage of those animals are regeneratively raised. Producing cattle in systems that are healing to the land is also proving to be hugely beneficial to the farmers who adopt those approaches. But there are big barriers to shifting things in that direction at scale. Whatever your views on meat, I think it's a conversation that everyone can take interest in. Because as Richard concludes, ultimately, it's the consumer who has the power to change the system. He brings us insights from a career hands-on within the meat supply chain, first within his home country, the UK, and as chief sustainability officer for one of the largest suppliers of natural and organic meats going into the US supermarket system. He helps us to mull over the challenges and what might need to be done to provide purchasers with both the convenience and the understanding to make choices that could really scale things up for regeneration. The most available path might be for each of us to take an interest and build our knowledge. So Richard shares some great additional resources for you to take a look at after you've listened. You'll find the links in the description. Right, let's get stuck in. Hi, Richard. Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate that you're going to spend the time talking about um, essentially the meat industry and the supply chain within that today. Fantastic topic. And I wonder if you could start us off with just a quick introduction to yourself and maybe a bit of background into the work that, that sort of led you into this area. Yeah, sure. Well, um, thanks, Helen, for having me on this. First of all, I think your, um, your podcast series is really interesting and um, I'm a big fan of your animations that you do so yeah um amazing work with that um but yeah so a little bit about me so i've been in the meat industry for just over two decades so um, i grew up in the countryside near cambridge in england and always grew up uh, working on farms to make extra pocket money in the summer holidays and that led um to doing uh, studying agriculture at uh, newcastle university which is in the northeast of england and from there, um, I got a job working as a graduate trainee for a large um, British Irish meat company. And I was based at a slaughter and deboning operation in Yorkshire, not too far from where you are. And <clears throat> that gave me the opportunity to learn the whole process from how the animal is grown, but then also how is it slaughtered? Um, how is it a, you know, dry aged? How where do all the parts and pieces come from? How does all that work? And then how do you supply that into the supermarket network? How do you pay the farmers? How do the supermarkets pay you? It was a really well-rounded 
uh, practical education as to how the meat industry works. And from there, I gradually got into sales, uh, moved down to London and did that for um, 10 or so years. And then I got the opportunity to move over to the States where I'm talking to you from now um, in Austin, Texas, uh, working for a large um, natural and organic uh, meat supply, actually the, the largest over here in the US, um, doing the same thing. And my current role is chief sustainability officer. So I'm trying to figure out ways that we can better raise meat uh, for the future of the planet and for better health for the humans eating it and uh, for the best animal welfare possible. Fantastic. I find this a really interesting angle to come from because not many of us think about how the meat is going on that journey to go from the farm to the supermarket. And I think a lot of us don't think about that because it's something we don't want to think about. Like you said, uh, in the slaughterhouse and figuring out which parts of the animal things come from, it's a bit real for, for, for many of us, a bit too sort of connecting to our food, which is something we need to do more of, I think, in my opinion. I think it helps us to really get to terms with where things are coming from. But the thing with this podcast is we hear all the time about the beauty and the benefits and the opportunities of regenerative agriculture. It's a topic that we just can't, we can't avoid it when we're thinking about a sustainable future. How we treat the land, the approach to farming, it is very much there as a solution to um, healing the planet whilst supporting our needs at the same time. Just a fantastic fantastic thing to get into and today I'd really love to take this opportunity to delve deeper into this reality of the meat supply chain because I think it helps us to get a better grasp of the challenges of making a transition. We have this wonderful opportunity of regenerative agriculture but how do we actually get there at scale um, and I think breaking things down it's a really big topic but breaking it down a little bit will help us to to really picture what those challenges are what those steps forward might look like um, and I think that one of the key sort of areas to get stuck in with to start with if we just have a have a sort of think about where we get this conflicting information we hear like I've just said regenerative agriculture fantastic solution but we so so often hear that animals are the problem when it comes to climate discussions, environmental discussions. Animals are actually the enemy in, in those kind of discussions. And yet in regenerative agriculture, we often hear that animals are really, really huge integral part of the solution. So, so I think um, that's all to say, if, if we could sort of break this down a little bit and understand where that conflict's coming from, I think a great place to start would be to just centre it all about the climate and emissions and consider why, why we could consider animals to be the enemy and also the solution. Where, where does that crossover come from? Yeah, well, I think um, you've got to bring it back to what a ruminant animal is and cows are ruminants which mean they have four stomachs and they have uh, microbes and bacteria living within their stomachs that help them break down the food that they're eating most of which is food that is not able to be uh, digested by humans which honestly is is the main benefit long term and in, in having 
um, ruminants and beef as part of um, the supply chain and part of food for humans, you know, on the planet, because they're very good at taking uh, foodstuffs like grass and turning them into high quality protein. But if you think about what the bacteria is doing in their, their stomachs as they're helping the, um, the, the cattle digest the food, their um, methane is a byproduct which the cattle belch out, they burp it out about once a minute for the life of the cow. And so the longer the cow lives, the more it's burping out methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas. And so it is easy for critics of the system to just point at the methane and say cows are bad because they emit methane and methane is a greenhouse gas. But if you do that, you're, you're not considering the overall benefit that cattle and cows can have on a climate change if they're farmed in, in, in such a way to be classed as regenerative or sustainable, meaning there are plenty of other factors that they contribute other than just the methane coming out of their mouths, which is they're really helping um, the, the general health of the farms on, on which they're raised in terms of the soil biology is a, is a big one. And by having ruminants on your farm, A, you're helping the grass grow because grass that is grazed by ruminants grows at a quicker rate than grass that isn't grazed by ruminants. So cattle need to be considered as overall contributors to a, a positive climate situation because they're doing good for the environment on which the cattle are raised. They're feeding the soil biology. They're helping more grass grow, which in turn is photosynthesizing more sunlight and putting carbon and exudates into the soil, which feed the soil um, biology. So the overall picture of cattle is, is beneficial to that. But if you're just looking at methane, then they can be, you know, if, if that's where you, you stop investigating, then um, that's why you're getting, you know, a, a, a conflicting um, point of view on this. There are some actually really interesting ways that this is being helped um, in terms of how the cattle are being fed. There are some studies happening um, over here in the States about including additives in their feed, such as um, seaweed, which dramatically reduces the methane being admitted um, by them as they're being fed. That definitely works. But as of yet, there's no plan as to how you grow seaweed on such a scale and are able to distribute it effectively to, you know, a farm in Illinois miles from where seaweed could be grown. So that's, you know, slightly problematic. But yeah, I think you, you have to look at them as a, as a key part in growing the biodiversity of life on the farm and not just the methane that's being emitted. That's fantastic. So in terms of the animal being a ruminant, this all comes down to the microbiology in its digestive system and then how that essentially is breaking down the grass. And I suppose that then as you've touched upon the, the different foods that that animal eats, it's impacting what that microbiology is is outputting or what's active and how the balance is. But overall, when we talk about regenerative agriculture, we are really wanting to nurture that soil life and the ruminant animal can be a huge benefit towards that. I think um, 
I'd, I'd love to explore this conversation in terms of the different ways that the animals are produced um, in terms of um, there, there are such vast ways that, that they kind of contrast how, how you can produce an animal to produce food. And I think the one of the huge topics within this, I suppose it's a lot of noise. In my opinion, there's a lot of noise that gets in the way of productive conversation around regenerative agriculture and food, um, particularly meat, because it comes down to whether or not we should be eating meat. This, this sort of, is it good for the body? Is it good for the environment? Is it cruel to the animals? And it's a very complex topic. And um, to be honest, it's not something I want to delve into too deeply here. I think it's a topic for a different conversation. Whether we should eat meat or not, to my sort of best of what I could say in this you know, moment in time, it's, it's a very, very personal decision. It's very nuanced and it's, it's not something that we can sort of put a right or wrong on. However, what we can look at is those different ways that the animals are produced and how that impacts upon animal welfare. I think that's something that is very important for people to get a grasp of to help them to make the right decisions for themselves. So when it comes to this and we, we look at, um, perhaps we could call it industrialised, meat production versus regenerative meat production. Is there a big difference to the animal's experience within those two different ways of producing the meat? Yeah, well, I think um, especially here in the US where I'm talking to you from, um, famously food is produced in quite an industrial way, whatever the food is that you're looking at. Because back in the 50s post second world war um the way to get votes and to stay in power at the time was to give jobs to as many people as possible and make food as cheap as possible available for the masses and so at, at that time the system was set up to heavily incentivize the growing of corn here in the states anyway and that then got turned into um, ethanol to help cars go it got turned into high fructose corn syrup which has a lot of problematic uh, things associated with it as a foodstuff but it also got put into um, the cattle growing system because we realized that if you fed cattle on grain uh, and corn rather they grew really quickly but they also got sick and so antibiotics became a big part of the uh, the food supply chain um, hormones became a big part of the food supply chain and with that it definitely raised questions on animal welfare I'm not saying if it's right or wrong but it's definitely um, it can be problematic to some people and what they believe in um, what I would say is that animals still spend most of their life on grass. Even here in the States, um, cattle that end up in a feedlot will still spend two thirds of their life raised on grass before they go into a feedlot. Um, and just to be clear, I think it might be it might be useful to define what a feedlot is. And it's really a, a confined area where animals are being fed. Now, this might be a beautiful farm in Lincolnshire, near where you're talking to me from, and the farmer might have a barn where he puts the cattle in over the winter and feeds them barley. I mean, that's a feedlot because the gate is shut and the animals are in there eating 
barley or wheat or something. <clears throat> You've also got the huge feedlots here in the US where you might have 15, 20,000 cattle all in one location being fed corn. Um, the definition of, of concentrated animal feed operations or CAFOs, which means uh, you have to have more than a thousand animals on your feedlot to be classed as that. Um, these are all different ways of doing it. And it's interesting because from a meat production standpoint, they're very efficient places. Um, the other thing, which is a kind of complicated thing to get your head around and really um, answers your question is, is the animal welfare aspect. If you look at um, the most, probably the most famous person in the animal welfare space is Temple Grandin. And uh, I encourage all of your listeners to um, watch the movie with Claire Danes, which came out a couple of years ago, really good in um, understanding the impact that she had on animal welfare globally. Well, she came up through feedlot systems. And if purely your question is animal welfare and do the animals have a good experience? Well, with all of the indicators, the answer is yes. Although visually from our human perspective, when you see cattle in these big feedlots often with no grass and it kind of looks like a gigantic car park um, and compare that to an animal on a regenerative farm knee deep in grass with trees and birds and things, you think, oh, well, the welfare is going to be dramatically different. But if you look at the way that we measure welfare, for example, um, the five freedoms, which is an idea that came out of England several years ago, like freedom to display natural behavior, freedom from thirst, freedom from hunger, freedom from disease. Well, all of those boxes are checked in the feedlot system as they are in the regenerative system. So it is a it's a complicated idea because visually they look very different in the systems. But when you look at whether the animal is happy to all the ways that we know how, how to measure that, <clears throat> the animal is equally happy in, in both systems. But from a regenerative point of view, I think there are many um, challenges with the feedlot system because the cattle aren't um, grazing grass. They're not able to help um, promote soil biology. They're not helping with water infiltration or water holding capacity um, of the land that they're on. All of those things are taken away. But the other um, thing that's hard to kind of get your head around is because it's such an efficient way to feed animals, you're able to grow them quickly. It also means that they're, um, they're emitting less methane because they're alive for a shorter period of time. So globally, livestock um, is responsible for about 11% of em emissions of methane or, or carbon footprint. But in the US, that number's down to 4%. So it's quite a difficult conflicting idea to get your head around that actually the feedlots on the surface, they look quite overwhelming, scary places. But then when you think about it from a carbon emission point of view, it's such an efficient way to raise animals that um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's conflicting. Anyway, it's definitely conflicting to me to kind of get my head around it. Absolutely. As you're saying all of this, it's actually, I thought we would 
take the surface off this um, this topic a little bit and it would become a bit black and white. And actually that isn't the case. It's, it's much more um, complicated than that. There's so many layers and um, everything you've said, um, it, it pokes up another layer. Um, so the idea that you could say the methane emissions from that numbers point of view, the feedlots benefiting the climate from the perspective of methane numbers throughout the lifetime of the animal. Yeah, or it's or you're saying it's doing less harm. I'm not sure that it's benefiting because all of the um, positive, the environmentally positive things that ruminant animals can do are kind of being taken away, but you are doing less harm because you're emitting 4% emissions compared to globally where that figures somewhere like 11. Yeah. And I think that, uh, like I said, this is actually, we, we dig under the surface, it gets more complicated. So let's let's keep kind of going through this a little bit more because I think that, that complication, let, let's throw it out and maybe we'll get some clarity again. I am, I'm kind of taking a few things that you've said there and I'm thinking that we can't look at this as simple numbers because in the um, regenerative system when the cow is purely grazing, the methane is surely part of that system then. It's part of the whole system. When that becomes a, an animal on a car park, essentially, or uh, this industrial massive, massive scale lot, that methane might be a smaller number in terms of there's less days of the animal's life to produce the steak. But what's happening with that methane? It's just going into a big pile or it's not got the soil, it's not got the microbiology in that soil to be integrated. So I would argue um, right off the bat that it would, it, it's a kind of, that those numbers are irrelevant or they're the wrong numbers to be looking at perhaps. Yeah, that's right, because you have to look at it as a system as a whole. And um, going back to my days at university to get my agricultural degree, th the essence of farming was relatively simple that you get out what you put in. So if you want to have high crop yields as an output, then your input has to be fertilizer and herbicides and pesticides. And it was kind of like a chemistry equation. But I think there's more and more evidence to support the fact that agricultural agriculture should be seen as a biology um, system and not a chemistry system. And by feeding this incredible network of um, all of the, the fungal and bacterial life that exist under the soil, the more that you can feed that, the much better it is for the farmer whose land it is that you're farming upon and ruminants are key part of that and if you can get that right and you can use the animals as part of a um, maybe a multi-species system or, or a multi-crop system <clears throat> you can really show dramatic improvements in your on-farm profitability but you can also in this day and age of seemingly constant drought and flooding especially over here in the states you can make your farm much more resilient to these extreme environmental effects which which are um happening every year you know i, I um, was uh, reading last week that for every one percent of soil organic matter on your farm 
per acre, you can hold about 20,000 gallons of water. So if you picture a like soil like a sponge holding all that water, but for every 1% of soil organic matter you can grow, you can hold an additional 20,000 gallons of water on that same acre. And so therefore, if farmers become aware of things like that, it becomes more a question of, for example, working on your infiltration. So when the rain falls, making sure that every drop of that rain gets held on your land and not washed into rivers and streams, because you know that for the next month or two, maybe there's not going to be more rain, but you'll also know that that's been absorbed into your soil and is available for the roots of those plants to continue to grow and the animals that are living on top of the land will continue to, to feed them, which in turn will help them grow more. You know, it's, it's a whole system um, that, that you're trying to support. Yeah, it's so wonderful that that self-feeding system and then those the, the sort of round out benefits of the drought resistance and all of that that goes hand in hand. It seems, um, in my mind at least, it seems like the direction that things should be kind of persuaded towards is that that should become more of the norm, more of the sort of um, scaled up. The the thing, that, like I said, the, the topic, I asked a sort of question expecting a black and white answer about the welfare. That didn't that didn't come through because the answer is it's varied, so, so varied. And um, we we can't really, um, like you've described a feedlot, 20,000 cows, or it could be just a, a handful of cows that are behind a gate or fenced in on a night. That that terminology doesn't really give us a black and white. So there's, there's not a particular black and white here. But when... Um, when we think about this cyclic system and nature um, being part of that, so the cows are eating the grass, they're eating the food that's right at their feet, and then they're benefiting that soil that's having those additional benefits. When you talk about the feedlot system, and you've mentioned the methane numbers might look great in the feedlot system in one particular viewpoint, but that isn't taking into account that that food has actually, for the cows, got to be produced on a site elsewhere or perhaps on the same farm in some cases, but it's got to be fertilised, it's got to be seeded, it's got to be have the pesticides on and then it's got to be transported and perhaps processed, I'm guessing. So all of that's an additional um, need, whereas on the, the it's eating the grass on the field, none of that is actually required or a small amount compared I think that it like it, it's it's a it's a challenging to get that black and white, but we can put things into different groups and and help us to break break this down a bit. One thing I'd like to go just one step back on because it was interesting when you said it is that the reason that the feedlots in America are so productive and that methane number comes down is because they're fed on corn, and through feeding them corn, they grow faster. So the, the animal is growing faster. But is corn ever part of a natural diet to a cow? And how does that impact its digestive system? Yeah, well, well it, it, it isn't. Um, I mean, corn is a grass. That's the category of crop that it is. So farmers will grow it um, on their own land to 
feed to cattle in a natural system and cows would naturally eat corn but they would eat the, the whole plant so you picture the field of maize that's seven eight foot high and they would be eating all of that not just the the yellow sweet corn that's in the cobs which ultimately is is what the cattle are eating in feedlots so it's about giving them you remember i said at the start that they're ruminants so they have um bacteria microbes within their stomachs they they thrive on roughage that's what they need they need cellulose um to be able to um, feed on and break down to give the energy to the, the cow that's what a ruminant is and the the challenge with giving them really high energy feed is that um it, it can make them sick and that's why antibiotics are a big part of the um the food supply chain at least here in the states in the uk it's different antibiotics would just be used therapeutically so if an animal gets sick you treat it for the sickness with veterinarian assistance whereas here at least for a lot of the meat that's produced cattle get given antibiotics as a blanket treatment to stop them from getting sick from the food that they're going to eat um and then in addition to that they have um hormone implants there like clips in the ears to enable them to put on um weight quicker and so um the the companies raising those type of animals you know everybody gets paid quicker because you're able to um finish the animal as in make it ready for slaughter after about 20 months whereas if an animal is out just on pasture for its whole life the grass-fed grass-finished beef it probably takes nearer to three years so you know it takes an extra third longer and that's why you know grass-fed beef is more expensive than corn-fed beef so that brings up a, you know another um, part of the equation is making sure that the food is affordable not just to the wealthy but to everybody <clears throat> So it's a, it's a really complicated equation. Absolutely, absolutely. It's something that um, I suppose we could chew over from all different directions, but I'm finding it really interesting to, to have these insights. And the so, so when it comes to grass-fed, the, the sort of underlining expense is that extra time to produce it. That tends to be the, the key, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it takes it, it, it yeah, because it takes about one third extra time to produce grass-fed, grass-finished cattle. You need more land to do that, um, and just all of the costs associated with the day-to-day -day running of a farm um, go into <clears throat> go into that number. And yeah, it, it it is just more expensive because you're you're having to spend an extra year or 10 months to get the animal ready for point of slaughter to make sure that all, all the farmers are all trying to raise cattle that hit a certain bullseye whatever that bullseye is because ultimately they're raising the animals to be eaten and to be picked off the supermarket shelf so they're all being given targets of how big an animal to raise because that will affect the size of the ribeye steak that you pick up from the supermarket shelf and if that ribeye steak is too big you're not going to pick it up maybe because it'll be too expensive and if it's too small you're not going to pick it up because you'd be worried that it's not going to be enough for, for your meal so <clears throat> the whole system is kind of built on 
ultimately the consumer and the consumer will dictate what the producer is producing and so if you can if you can tailor the system to work towards a bullseye that is a regenerative bullseye versus a conventionally raised bullseye you know that's ultimately how the system will eventually change so you as a consumer have the power to make that change by deciding what meat you're buying in the supermarket or which restaurant you're choosing to eat at that ultimately feeds back to the whole system and whilst the system will try to tell you we want you to eat this ultimately you've got that choice that you can either choose to buy a, a regeneratively raised steak or non-regeneratively raised steak and you know that that'll come down to lots of things and and money will be a big part of it maybe you can't afford to buy the regenerative steak um <clears throat> but that's ultimately what will determine the future of the meat industry is what the consumer chooses to buy and how well they understand how that meat has been produced and it's really complicated and i guarantee that most people shopping for meat in the supermarket aisle probably buy the same thing every week out of habit maybe they're intimidated to ask more questions about it i'm sure they find it overwhelming and i think one of the biggest things we've got to do as a regenerative movement or as a meat industry is to educate the consumer to make more informed choices so that you fully understand if i'm picking up this pack of meat compared to this pack what system am i actually supporting and the same applies for all food like if you're picking up this pint of milk versus this pint of milk well, what what's the difference what there's a price difference there so what what does that look like further back in the supply chain so i think one of the main takeaways from this conversation is i'd encourage everybody to be as curious as you can be to understand what it is that you're buying and choosing to eat because ultimately that will dictate how things are produced I think that's incredibly important. And I think that really is the crux of this conversation is we've we've opened up the the sort of um, discussion with what appears to be more complexity and more confusion. If people are listening to this, trying to find clarity, they might actually have to step into that zone of, OK, it's not as black as white as black and white as what I was hoping. But I think that that we have kind of identified what needs to be the case moving forward and that's for people to understand that this is important and to be able to know how to recognize what the different meat is if they're going to the supermarket or the different places that they can choose to purchase from. I think before we discuss that just a little bit more I'd love to ask about the choices from the perspective of the farmer because so much of this, it's a system that's in place and it's business. So we're, we're taking a topic of animals and living creatures, but we are putting them into the scope of business. And everything about the, the production method is a bit conveyor belt. It's a bit how quick can we get them through the system? How um, prescriptive and predictable can that system be? And how uniform can the product become at the end? We are talking about business and we, we kind of can't take that aspect away from it as much as maybe we would like to. It is about providing to the demands of the consumer in a way that is 
sensible and successful to business. And when it comes to food production, this is hugely incentivized and supported and guided by government and policy. It's different across the globe. But I wonder if there's any insights at all that you could offer from um, your experience on is the farmer incentivized to take the feedlot route more so than the regenerative route um, or is there a balance? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we've definitely become smarter um, from a European point of view. When I was at college, we learned about um, the various subsidies that were in place to maximize production. And that was certainly the case worldwide, US and um, UK. All subsidies were in place to maximize production. Yield was the goal. But then it resulted in, uh, you know, butter mountains and um, milk lakes and that kind of terminology, which I remember from the 90s when things got changed slightly and directed more at um, environmental benefits to the farm and not just yield. And I think that's good, but I definitely don't think it's gone far enough. Certainly here, that's still the case. There's um, a really interesting documentary that I urge people to watch called King Corn. It's a few years old now, but it's these two college students and they uh, really look in detail as to how corn is raised here in the States and why it is such a, a massive um, factor in how food is eaten over here. And one of the interesting pieces in it is that they calculate that for every acre of corn that they raise, they lose $20. So they lose $20 for every acre of corn that they raise, but the government pays them $28 for every acre. So overall, they come out $8 profit profitable for each acre of corn they grow. But yet, if you look at the system overall without the subsidy, they're losing money. And so that's certainly not sustainable. And the thing which I find really interesting and why I love the regenerative movement so much is that it does help farmers farm to grow their profits and not to grow their yields. And it is a system that can feed humans worldwide if everybody was to do it. But it's going to take a long time to get there because still all the subsidies are in place to promote industrial agriculture. And <clears throat> certainly over here, if you're a farmer and you want to, say, grow crops, well, you have to take a bank loan to do that, to afford the seed and the equipment to do that. And the bank won't loan you that money unless you also take out crop insurance. And so you kind of get locked into this system where it's hard to be nimble as a farmer or a producer, even if you're massively into the regenerative movement. You know, there's a fairly decent chance that you can't afford to start that journey because you're locked into your bank loans, you're locked into crop insurance. And it's really hard to come out of that system. And it's certainly, you know, personally, uh, it would feel really risky to go into the regenerative system. Now, there are lots and lots of regenerative case studies of farms that have shown wherever you are 
in the world that you can make it work profitably to grow crops, cattle, whatever food regeneratively. And I strongly believe it is the way to go, but the system is certainly working against you. Now there are positive things in place. There's um, a, a movement over here called Regenerate America, which is looking at trying to affect the farm bill, which I think goes to Congress um, later this year. There are people way more knowledgeable about that than me, but you can look that up. And um, I know that um, people over here, the, the guys who made the Kiss the Ground move, movie, are trying to at least put influence in that to try to further steer subsidies more towards um, sustainable futures for farmers rather than just um, maximizing yields. Yeah, it's wonderful that, that that is there, that initiative is there. There's so many fantastic things that are happening and it, that there's change that is taking place, I have no doubt about that. And it's, it's moving things in the right direction. I think something that struck me with what you've just said, um, and the first time that I heard this was, was not this conversation, but it, it's well worth sort of, of stepping back over, is this idea that with the subsidies, per acre, $8 profit. That's with the subsidies. Without the subsidies, there's a loss. Now, now all I can think of with that is, well, you're going to need an awful lot of acres to, to be making a living out of that. So this is about scale. And, and it, it kind of, in my mind, I think if you had an acre of land, you would just need a bit of creativity and ingenuity on that small scale to have all different ways that you could make money and make a business out of that in a community sense, in a tourist sense, in a food production sense. There's, there's a lot of sort of small scale things that you could do with that one acre that I would say would challenge that $8 profit quite, quite satisfactorily. So it, it seems to me like this system is not only built on uh, this sort of very rigid um, financial system, it's about scale also. It's hugely about scale. So the, in, in that regard, the, the industrial feedlot is going to naturally, it's, it's going to have a lot more produce to offer the market than a small-scale regenerative farm. Is the system, therefore, the route to market for farmers, is it completely different for the regenerative, the small-scale, let's say this, so if we just talk on scale, is it, is it beneficial to have a large-scale farm to get your, your, your meat into the supermarket? Yeah, I mean, of course it is. The big challenge from the meat supply chain is that customers want every cut of meat available to them every single day of the year. And so that's really challenging. So you could come up with an amazing way to raise animals um, with all these terms and conditions attached, like it's got to be a certain breed, it's got to be fed a certain way, you've got to massage it three times a day and play at Mozart and things like that. But then you'll only end up with two or three animals a year and no supermarket is gonna take on a program like that. So you have to find ways that are scalable. And that's definitely one of the barriers to the regenerative movement that there are so many different ways of raising animals set by the context of wherever your farm is located. So 
it's it's hard to introduce these blanket statements even you know how do you define regenerative well it's maybe to do with how much water is being infiltrated and can you grow that it's maybe to do with biodiversity <clears throat> on your land and is that growing or is it is it not growing um is it to do with soil organic matter like what percentage of carbon is in your soil well for those three simple things i bet most farmers globally probably don't know what those numbers are because they're not being tested currently which means um you know as a as, as a effectively the um the channel between the farm and the supermarket we can't go to a a supermarket and say this meat is regenerative because they're going to say well we have to prove it is with with facts and figures and numbers and it's hard to get enough farmers together who are regenerative because not enough of them know if they are or or not because up until now the only measurement which has been important is is yield you know how much meat are you producing from your cattle per year or how much um, yield how many bushels of corn are coming from your lamp here yeah, that's been the main measurement as companies work out how to put programs together so that you as a consumer can eat the meat or eat the grain or the bread or the milk or whatever it is and that's the <clears throat> that's the biggest barrier now is it harder to <clears throat> be a small farmer and be a part of the system yeah it is but it's definitely not impossible you know, I work for uh, a company over here in the States with the largest supplier of natural and organic meats into the U.S. supermarket system. And we have farmers who maybe give us 10 head of cattle a year, really small. And they're just as important to us as the guys who are giving us, you know, 100 head of cattle a week. Because uh, I guess my, my point is it's not it's definitely not impossible. There are companies out there like the one. That, that I work for who can help support that system, but it's definitely harder because you, you need the economies of scale, you know, tractors, labor, um, land, it's, it's expensive. And so you have to think about, well, what's your revenue going to be after you've spent money on your tractors and farm equipment and things like that. And the revenue is going to come from your yields and from the number of cattle that you can take from birth to slaughter every year and, and things like that and so you want to spread out your fixed costs as wide as you can and that's why gigantic farms are are you know in inverted commas taking over um you, you know where i'm from in in cambridge i saw farms going from being say 250 acres in size to a thousand acres in size to four thousand acres in size and most of which would probably be farmed by similar kit because it's just it, it is a more efficient way to farm and i think we thrive on having that natural diversity of farms both big and small and that's what makes the countryside as beautiful as it is today for that reason and i think it's it's definitely a risk that we're going to get to a stage where there are only going to be a few farmers left who farm masses of acres um you know here in the states the average age of a farmer is 68 years old 68 years old is the average age of a farmer and that i guess tells you what you need to know like it's it's really hard it's hard work to 
be profitable as a farmer in the current system. Um, I, I read um, last week that farmer debt right now with the current subsidy system grows at about 4% every year. So for every year, the average farmer is in debt 4% more than what they were the previous year. But that's not that's not a sustainable way to do things. So, you know, the system has to change, but that is what it is right now. Yeah, that actually underlines the idea that, because um, I think that so much of this is in favor of the industrialized system. The way that things are, um, is it's, it's kind of built to support that. And yet what you're describing is a system that's not attracting the next generation. And it's not providing a satisfactory profit for the amount of work that farmers are putting into it. So in many ways, we could we could say that that is also a push towards why why we need something new. It's not just thinking about the climate or the animals themselves. It's not really working very well for the farmers. So we do need something new. And fortunately, although we've talked about the challenges a lot today, there are a lot of farms making the transition. There's a lot of farmers making the decision to, to, to change the way that they're approaching their land. And I wonder if you've got any insights on what you think might be motivating that for them on a sort of individual level. Yeah, well, I think, remember what I said about subsidies really being geared towards yield only. Well, many... Um, modern regenerative techniques and practices are geared towards on-farm profitability, which does not equal yield. So when I referenced farm being, farming being a chemical equation, input equals output, well, trying to think of it as more of a biological, more of a kind of biology system, well, getting those inputs massively reduced. Um, corn is extremely expensive. Fertilizer is extremely expensive. So if you can farm in a way that reduces those inputs, then uh, you can, you, you will end up having slightly lower yielding land. Yes, whatever it is that your, is your cash um, revenue, whether it's cattle, whether it's crops, whatever it is, but your profits will go up significantly i've i've read studies of regenerative farms here in the states where the yield will drop by 29 percent but the profit will go up by 78 percent because what you're doing is you're eliminating the need for expensive inputs and you're farming in such a way that you're using <clears throat> free inputs you're you're making better use of the rainfall you're making better use of the soil biology you're making better use of the sunlight that falls on your land and converting it into energy that can grow the, the grass or grow the crops or whatever the revenue is. So th there's definitely a, a, a positive um, return, whether it whether you believe in climate change and doing what's right for the environment or whether you believe in uh, making money for your family, that those two things go together. Um, it's just... It, it's really hard to get to that jumping off point as a farmer to start on that system with the way things are set up. But if you're brave enough to do it, there are enough people out there that have shown that it's a profitable um, income for your family. 
it's really beneficial to wildlife it's really beneficial to welfare it's really beneficial to soil health it's really beneficial to resilience on on your farm to to flooding and to drought so there are there are plenty of upsides to it it's just you've got to be brave to get to that jumping off, off point it really does sound like that bravery is something that is well worth the I suppose think of it as an adventure, not a gamble, and and try to to get involved in the community, even online. There's so so much support for for sort of sharing knowledge and experience in this field, and it's such a yeah very dynamic area. It's but it's it it is still small. Um, I think I'm definitely guilty of surrounding myself on my social media who I follow in this space and you kind of think that it's taking over the world but when you zoom out um just let's talk cattle numbers for a second so every single day here in the states about 120,000 head of cattle um are, are slaughtered for meat production 120,000 now if you look at the natural market so those which don't use hormones and antibiotics that's probably 3 or 4,000 per day, tiny number. And then you look at the grass fed, grass finished, you're probably looking at 400 a day, something like that. And um, and then if you, you know, further on top of that, have those that are regeneratively audited and approved, it would be a, a fraction of that. So I say that just so that you understand like the scale of it is still really tiny and there's, um, it's growing rapidly it is growing rapidly and going back to what i said about you be you the consumer who's buying the meat ultimately you have the power to change the system but it's uh it's starting from a really small base and it's growing quickly for sure and there are some great indicators out there i mean the the biggest retailer in the world walmart now has grass-fed beef on the shelf and that is a great indicator that they've recognized that enough of the population are interested in eating beef grown from a system where the animal's just eating grass well that that's really interesting and so that shows that the needle is starting to move um but we've obviously got a, a long way to go because we're still you know single percentage points of the total market are, are in this space so i think it's valuable work it's really important work but we also have to understand that we're a really tiny percentage of the total market and to make a difference we've got to try and shift the needle further but many good things are happening to push us in that direction yeah thank you for those statistics because that is very stark it's very easy to see that these the scale of this is you know it's just this tiny little thing in the corner and as you've said numerous times, it, it can be down to the consumer to, to say, hang on a minute, I'm going to get involved, I'm going to get informed, and I'm going to go and look for food that supports and, and make that clear to the to the supermarkets, to the shops you're buying from. And I think, as you've mentioned yourself in this sort of bubble within your social media and thinking that regeneration is taking over the world, I think that we can very, very much, I, I kind of can be guilty of that too. And the other thing that goes side by side with that is to just indicate in this discussion, we've talked about supermarkets an awful lot. 
one of the really obvious solutions is to skip the supermarket, in my opinion, is to go more localised, farmers' markets, direct from the farm. That would be the, the easiest way to have this discussion. But the reality is that scale, if you want to scale it up, you've got to bring the supermarket into the conversation because the consumer at large needs the convenience and they need the um, routine that they're used to in order to integrate this change into their lives. We're not talking about small percentages. We want to we want to kind of make sure that this is taking over the, the world. And if that was possible, I suppose that the method that you've discussed with, that you've sort of touched on a little bit about the, the work that you do, the role that you play at the moment, you're bringing together smaller and medium-sized producers um, and bringing those through into one distributor is that right yeah that's right so um you need more um you need companies in the middle like um the one that i work for to aggregate all of the small producers to form an offering so that you know remember as as humans we want to we, we want convenience we want to go to the grocery store 24 hours a day and when we get there we want to have the full selection of meat available and so in order to do that you know remember i, I referenced we, we uh, work with people who maybe give us 10 head per year well um i need lots of people like that um spaced evenly through the year to enable you as a consumer to go to the supermarket whenever you want to get get um the products that you want from it and so it, it it's difficult it's a challenging um system because often people do want to raise meat in a better way than what it's being raised right now but the the speed bumps in the road are that you have to have something available every week of the year whether you're a restaurant whether you're a supermarket or even if you're um you know e-commerce doing direct uh, shipping and, and um the, the other challenge is that there used to be a network of small slaughterhouses whether it's the uk or whether it's the us and increasingly the, the smaller ones have shut because in order to have the best welfare possible um you know uh, the best um technology in place to um slaughter the animal in as a pain-free way as possible it's expensive like all of that kit to do that properly is expensive and what the, you know the other um i guess juxtaposition is that you have the bigger slaughterhouses are often the ones with the best welfare because they've got the money and the economies of scale to afford the um, the best way to unload the animal off the truck or the best way to um, accurately um, slaughter it as, as quickly and as pain-free as possible. All of the, the the kit and the latest technology is really expensive. And so your, your small regional slaughterhouses that are maybe only processing five or 10 head a week, they can't afford that kit. So it's, 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 it's difficult. It'd be great to have a system where everything is hyper-local, but unfortunately, um, it, it, it costs money to get the best facilities possible. And so that's, you know, another reason why the bigger slaughterhouses are getting bigger 
and the small slaughterhouses are dying out. And we definitely saw that in COVID. It was really challenging because suddenly here in the States, you couldn't get animals across state lines and the, there wasn't enough capacity at, at the fewer larger slaughterhouses. And this, there was demand to go back to a system where you had more smaller regional slaughterhouses, but it, it, it's expensive. And um, I, I think there are um, grants and systems in place to try to return slightly in that direction. But again, it's about subsidies, it's about governments um, taking the view that that's important for sustainable agriculture. And yeah, we'll have to see what, 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 what happens. Yeah, yeah, it's a really big picture. There's so many layers to it that I think the consumer is um, oblivious to just for the fact that it's not going to come under their awareness. It's not not really questions that they're likely to ask. But I absolutely agree with you. I think that the consumer is at the sort of forefront of the, the, the change in that it's it's about scale. And we can figure out solutions for a small, but if for a small sort of quantity and a small system, we, we can introduce bespoke solutions. But if we're going to do it on scale, then it's the consumer that drives it. Um, and do you feel that this is about, um, should we be educating consumers about the value of the full animal rather than expecting a very specific and standardised cut of meat? Or um, do, you, do you feel that that comes into it at all? Yeah, I do. I think um, another thing which I find a staggering statistic is um, here in the States, 41% of meat gets thrown away. Um, that's after it's, um, you know, reached, whether it's the restaurant or the supermarket um, or whether it's um, at your home, um, because meat is so cheap that it becomes something that consumers don't think twice about whether they're gonna um, eat it or throw it away. And I think that's a, a really scary statistic when you think at how much trouble all the farmers go who deeply care about their animals, deeply care about the environment and the next generation coming through and all those kinds of things. And it takes them maybe as much as three years to produce um, the, the cattle for the beef. And then it just takes somebody making a bad purchasing decision or something sits in the back of the fridge and goes bad. And you think, well, it's not that expensive, so we'll just toss it in the trash. But I think we've got a lot of work to do as a, as a, um, in the way that we think about food and being more efficient as to how we eat it and enjoy it and you know maybe not having meat every single day of the week but having it less frequently but paying a little bit more for it to make sure that you're getting meat from the best possible source and you know as i said before just being curious like really understanding where the meat comes from that you're buying and perhaps questioning if um you know meat is really cheap why is it cheap and is that a system that i'm comfortable um supporting and um but but i do think in terms of regenerative meat there's this clearly like an, a shelf price jump right now because it hasn't yet reached that tipping point so here in the states if i want to buy conventionally raised industrially raised um 
ground beef, say, so mince meat, it's maybe going to be three or four dollars a pound to buy, you know, the, the, the mass produced product. Well, if I want grass fed, I'm maybe going to be paying six dollars a pound, something like that. And if I want organic grass fed, it's maybe going to be eight dollars a pound. And if I want regenerative, it's probably going to be about twelve dollars a pound. Something like that is going to be around about what the market is right now. So it's maybe four times more expensive to buy regeneratively raised ground minced beef on the shelf compared to conventional. So you've got to be kind of committed and really understand it and believe in it to buy it right now as a consumer. But I, I, I kind of liken it to the electric cars, right? When the first electric cars, the first Teslas came out um, in California, only a handful of people had them. They were really expensive and you probably had to be a firm believer in the electric car movement to buy one. But at some point it reached a tipping point of scale where they could produce enough using whatever kit is needed to produce a car that the cost per car got to a level where suddenly it became commercially viable as a buyer of a car. Instead of buying a petrol gas car, it became cheaper as a consumer to buy an electric car because suddenly you didn't have the gas costs and you only had to service it once a year instead of once every few weeks or, or whatever it is. Commercially, consumers were steered into the direction of buying electric cars because it became affordable compared to the alternatives. And I think regener regeneratively raised meat will get there. It's just going to take time. And I think right now we're at the stage where, like I said, you've got to be affording $12 a pound, about four times more than what conventionally raised meat is. So you've really got to believe in it. Um, at, at point of purchase as a consumer. And the more people that do, yes, it will help the regenerative movement grow and it will help encourage more farmers raise their cattle that way. But we're still quite early in the process. And so I think the most important thing right now is to talk about it, is to tell your friends about it, is to have these discussions hard or easy about climate change, about the importance of livestock in the supply chain and helping to um, enrich soil and get the most from ranchers land and make more grass grow and really do well for your farm in terms of growing the biodiversity and the species that you're supporting and the more we can have those conversations and get that message out there it'll help educate people so that at point of purchase maybe they think well instead of buying my $3 ground beef, seven meals a week. Maybe I'll just have one meal a week and I'll sp spend money on the $12 ground beef because I've now understood what regenerative actually means and the good that it will do for the environment, for the, the rural sustainability of the welfare of, of these small family farms to keep that going. Because actually that is something that is attractive to me and something that I want to support. and. You know, maybe I do have children and I want them to live in a world which is also flourishing and prosperous and doesn't have more droughts and more flooding, but actually we're doing something to try to reverse a lot of the damage that we've done. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic, but it's been very nicely, succinctly covered there um, by yourself. And 
I suppose it, it, there's so many potential avenues that we can take to improve things. And if we know what the ambition is and we know which way we want to be headed, then that's a really good starting point. Uh, I think waste as a massive sort of headline is something that we need to look at from not just the consumer's point of view, which was quite shocking, the, the figures that you said there of what gets thrown away, but the industry on the whole and across the whole supply chain, I think there's always potential to 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 put benefits and when you think about the the meat being so undervalued and so underpriced that it is discarded as a oh oh well I'll just pop it in the bin you wouldn't do that if you was valuing it to to pay those higher prices so maybe we're just looking at the wrong figures maybe the aspiration isn't that um, and then, then that comes into a whole other discussion because it's difficult. People are at a different position, whether they can afford to throw food away, whether they can afford to pay a little bit more. But on the whole, there, there's huge potential for learning and for improving things. And, um, and another discussion, maybe for another day, it sort of strikes me that something that is desperately needed is greater clarity in how we communicate. Like you are in the supermarket looking at that product how do you know i mean we've we've just had this conversation about how many different terminologies there are and what falls under those terminologies it's difficult to know at that point of purchase what you're supporting and i think the idea of a middleman that is doing the work for you and and helping identify yes this these are fantastically produced um, farms they know the farmer directly they put that brand and you know you can go to them i think that's a really good kind of um, option yeah and it's it's supremely complicated and your average consumer spends about three seconds deciding for example which pack of ground beef to pick up and then those three seconds as a as a, as a retailer as a seller of meat you have to try to communicate why you should pick up your pack of meat versus somebody else's and you have to communicate that it's antibiotic free, it's hormone free, it's a certain breed, it's been fed grass for its entire life, um, it's been you know rotationally grazed. You have to try and compact all that messaging into a three-second understandable message. It's supremely complicated, and so that's why it's really important to have these conversations. And um, I mean, I find wherever I go. Um, people want to talk about meat, whether you like meat or you don't like meat, whether you eat it or whether you don't. Everyone has a, a, an opinion about it. And I think it's really important just to try to get as many facts out there as possible and help people understand that there are so many different ways to raise cattle and many are really beneficial to the environment. And it's about having a better understanding of how food is produced, period, meat, milk, butter, bread, wh whatever it is, having a better understanding of that um, has got to be um, uh, important and will, um, yeah, and I think it, it needs to be in um, people's consciousness because they, everyone has an opinion about it, but often these opinions are based on things that aren't accurate. And so I think trying to um, take the mystery out of it is really important. Yeah. Fantastic. I think it's it. Yeah, that that underlines everything really. Trying to take that mystery out of a topic that's so complicated, 
Um, but you've highlighted a couple of documentaries throughout this, which I'll ensure we've got links to so people can pop over and learn a bit more if they'd like to dive in. Do you have any other recommendations on how people can take a role within all of this? Yeah, I've, I've got tons. And um, uh, I think anybody who, who knows me, I'm, I'm guilty of always trying to um, recommend things to read and watch. But um, I'll give you a few now. Um, there's a, an amazing... Um, climate scientist um, over here called Catherine Hayhoe, and she has this really good book out called Saving Us. And I think that gives a really good, balanced, practical overview as to the state of things right now and actionable things that you can do to try and help make a difference. So that's that's really that's one recommendation. Um, another couple of books that have been really influential on on my life and the career path I've chosen. There's a, um, an author called Mark Schatzka, who's a really interesting um, journalist and he wrote a book called Stake. Um, it's a few years ago, but still um, as relevant today. And um, the, the essence is, as he goes around the world eating steak and then exploring how that steak came to his plate, like how was the animal grown? What was it fed? And what differences did he notice in how it tasted, the experience he got, but also the experience that the animal got. Um, so that's Mark Schatzka's steak. He also wrote another book called The Dorito Effect, which is really fascinating, looking at how um, processed food can affect um, the, the impact that food has on your body and how important it is to try to really understand what the food is that you're eating and how it's made. Um, so that's the second one. I referenced the uh, the King Corn documentary, really interesting, just understanding how um, corn has influenced food, um, especially here in, in the US. Um, there is the Netflix documentary, Kiss the Ground. I know you've had well, one of the guys on your podcast, so probably your listeners are well aware of that. Um, there's also a really good um, YouTube a series called The Carbon Cowboys, um, which uh, loads of little, um, I guess, 15 minute um, mini movies, looking at people doing really good work in this space. Um, so yeah, I think those are those are my recommendations. And there are tons of podcasts like yours out there. Um, but yeah, as I said, I think it's all about being curious, um, especially when you're deciding whether to purchase meat, whether not to purchase meat, but what meat you're going to purchase or what food you're going to purchase. I think there's tremendous um, importance in making those decisions and thinking and being mindful of what system it is that you're supporting by where you're putting your pounds or your dollars, because that ultimately is going to change the system to the way that we want to change it, because um, producers produce food that is going to be consumed and if it's not being consumed then they're going to alter the ways that they're producing it so ultimately we've got the power it just takes a big collective to you know make those decisions absolutely well that's fantastic thank you so much for all those references and uh, everything that you've shared with us it's really very insightful and i hope that people have found something of interest and and can uh, yeah dig in a little deeper and have a have an extra think about what they're, they're choosing to purchase so thank you very much yeah of course well thank you so much for your time it's been a really good fun thank you and thank you for listening to this episode of we are carbon 
new episodes are added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. It's a huge help to the show if you'd like to add a thumbs up or a review on whichever platform you're listening on. And let's keep figuring this all out together. Together.